Hi, I'm JJ McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Kozer. And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't. We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So give us a listen, and remember, keep talking who. The last time I did something like that was in seventh grade when I completely skipped out on my spring uh, band concert. Oh. Just got home from school and just hanging out with my cousin and just oh, totally blanked on it. <laughs> I can go you one better. <laughs> Uh, 11th grade, uh, I was supposed to be in a choral thing, and my dad was fixing the car, and I completely forgot that I had the show that night, and I had a solo in it. Mm -hmm. And the solo was meant to be during a marching sequence, so the whole choir was just marching silently while I was supposed to be talking. So yeah, good times to be had by one and all. No. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the adversarial task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have a rarely adversarial two-person discussion panel. It's not even really a panel, it's more like a duo, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who has seen several episodes, but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Who would have guessed? Who would have guessed? Um, we'll just act like the, the figures on the shelves behind you are our extra panel members. Okay, we'll do that. The yeah. several hundred yeah. superhero figures that we have behind silently us. silently joining the conversation. Yes, and if you're wondering why they're silently joining the conversation, it's because we do not have Alison Fitch Seyfried with us tonight either wise or witty uh because she had a previous engagement and kind of blanked on us so that's fine because that means it's just going to be more intimate (laughs) yeah sure just the two of us just the two of us you and i and all of you at home Before we get to talking about the book, please remember our Patreon page, available at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, 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 a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. We know. We know. We know already. God damn it. We know. Shit. Stop telling us. As a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. You may have heard a bell in the background. That's not me having an idea. That is instead my cat, who we normally debell, but I completely forgot to debell him. I don't know why. As usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, and Toby Bengelsdorf. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, guys. We also have a new discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts, and best of all, it's hosted on Goodreads. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. 
we finally get some proof of just how wildly inaccurately named the monster season of Doctor Who is with our discussion of Ian Martyr's novelization of The Enemy of the World. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Enemy of the World, adapted by Ian Martyr from David Whitaker's script that aired from 12-23-67 to 1-27-68, published by Target Books in March 1981. As of this recording in October of 2018, this title is currently out of print, 127 pages. Alright, a little bit to tell you about this, Dalton, <laughs> since you're the only <laughs> yes, one who's I'm here. I'm all ears. Yes. For the longest time, actually he is, it's kind of terrifying there are ears on his face on his since there are shoulder. no monsters in this book i am the monster <laughs> he's stepping in as the so. monster which is very kind of you for the longest time the televised story had the worst reputation and for all the wrong reasons but what could you expect from a story whose main remit was let's let the lead actor play two different characters <laughs> Given its pedigree, it should have been even better. It was Whitaker. It was David Whitaker, and it was his first script since Evil of the Daleks, and we liked that, mm-hmm. and we liked Power. It was the last story produced under the aegis of the series' own creator, Sidney Newman. Script editor Peter Bryant was just about to become producer of the show, and the serial was directed by Barry Letts, who would go on to be producer for the show during John Pertwee's run as the Third Doctor. But there were at least two good reasons why this story is so poorly regarded for so long. One is that until a couple years ago, we only had episode three, which Letts himself admitted was the worst of the bunch. You have the worst episode of this story to go by. Yes, and for some reason it was preserved and kept. (laughs) As a reminder. As a reminder of just how bad it was. Yeah, exactly. The BBC's also did a switch. From 405 lines to 625 line technology, which is basically, in essence, kind of from switching from standard def to high def. So everything. I mean, it's got half as many more lines. Yes. So, it... so everything that looked cheap before really looked cheap now. Yeah. Especially since that was the episode in which they decided to keep a veteran prisoner in a corridor rather than build a brand new set because he was easier to look after there that was the scripted yeah that's not in the book for obvious reasons the other reason this story is so poorly regarded i believe is this novelization but we'll talk about that in 2013 all six episodes were recovered from nigeria including five episodes of the following story the web of fear and people got to look at the whole thing and appreciate it as a relatively decent Whitaker script. We got a bit more of the Cook character, who's just a delight on screen. You barely get him in the book. On the other hand, we got a lot more of Troughton's really awful Mexican accent. Yeah, we may have to find you a sound file of that, because that's something to listen to. Boy, Bruce. What are you doing here, huh? That being said... His physical performance as Salamander is amazing. He really becomes another person. Which I would expect. Yeah. Because because you've seen Trout in other roles. Seen that, but also that is the aspect of the the humor of the second Doctor that I'm always picking up on is the more physical humor. Exactly. So All those mannerisms that he has that don't translate to the page. Seeing him act out another character physically it's like yes duh yeah and it's it's astonishing because even though he's doing it in brown face and he's doing it with this awful mexican accent physically you can kind of see why troughton was considered a ladies man and had 
two families and a woman on the side, plus numerous mistresses. Hmm. Because, you know, because as Salamander, you're like, oh, daddy, okay. Dead tooth and all, I might actually do him. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it really is disturbing when you sexualize Troughton. It really is. And yet, I just did. One thing we didn't get, unfortunately, were any split-screen sequences, because the first time Let's tried one, the camera jammed. He wasn't used to doing it. And then he talked to another director, and the director said, Oh, you know, you could have just done this, because that's how we do it on video. And so we didn't get split-screen sequences. So you got two... You got Troughton playing two characters, and then... They only have, what, the one scene at the very end where True. they are well, that, together? That's why. <laughs> yeah, they had to rewrite the script. Oh, you're different. So, yes, yeah, it may have been a different I but... think, anyway. But if we're looking for a decent political thriller of the sort only someone like Whitaker can deliver, the televised version gives us everything we could ask for. Whitaker was actually starting to draft a novelization of the story when mm. he died in 1980. So the job of compressing six episodes into 127 pages fell to the usually very competent Ian Martyr Mm -hmm. doing his fourth book for this series. And in fact, doing his first of three Troughton novelizations. We are going to get two more from Ian Martyr before we're done. As a result, there's a lot missing. But as usual, your mileage may vary. So, do you want to flip or do you want to do... uh, Rock, paper, scissors to figure out who... I can read this. I don't mind. Okay. You're doing most of the, the legwork. So, All right. Uh, that I, can, works. I can read this. The tongue work well. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Yes. I was going to say... Read it to us, I will baby. leave my comment to myself. Uh, Doctor Who and the Enemy of the World. Yes. In the year 2030, only one man seems to know what action to take when the world is hit by a series of terrible natural disasters. Salamander's success in handling these monumental problems has brought him enormous power. From the moment the Doctor, Jamie, and Victoria land on an Australian beach, they are caught up in a struggle for world domination. A struggle in which the Doctor's startling resemblance to Salamander plays a vital role. Yes. Mm. Yes, and so this is terrible Mexican accent. Dalton has a physical copy. He has my physical copy of the book. Yes. And he had a question before we started recording, so I'm going to ask him to repeat that question now. Yeah, so just before we, we started, I was looking at the cover. Um, there are two characters on the front, one of one of which is Astrid. Smiling. Yeah. and then, We'll explain why that is in a minute, Yeah, too. and the, the other character, I have no idea who they are. That's Charles Kent. So... And there are a couple reasons why that cover is as horrible as it is. Uh, For one thing, this was published during a time when it was Target's policy to only feature the incumbent doctor on the cover. And since this was being done during Tom Baker's tenure, actually, I think technically it's during Davison's tenure, but they didn't want to confuse kids by having different doctors on the covers the way they used to when they started the whole series. You know, because that... (sighs) Yeah, it's that's the that's who he is. Exactly, exactly. And if you look at the new BBC reprints of these, they will do the original covers, and they also reprint what they used to do at the very beginning, which was the many faces of Doctor Who, and it would tell you which Doctor it was. So it's like, oh, okay, Okay. that's why it's this old guy on the cover, and it's not Tom Baker. Later editions of this, in fact, the. 
the Neon Tube logo version of this, and I believe the, the Blue Spine edition. Both have Trout and the Salamander on the cover. And it's really quite striking, because as Salamander, he's kind of terrifying looking. Huh. So yeah, it's a much better cover. This one, not so great. Astrid is from a photo reference of that actress smiling. It's a promotional photo. Yeah. Yeah. And it looks it. Because there's no Astrid never smiles during this story. She has nothing to smile about. <laughs> right. Yeah. So. Also, I, I love just all the computers and things. And then, is this a window? Looking out into the world, are they on top of some <laughs> magical tower? Just observing? on top of the world, looking down on creation. Yeah. And the only explanation I can find is that it's meant to be in twenty thirty, which also brings up another point. Um, guess when the original televised story was supposed to have taken place? Twenty eighteen. I was going to say this year. So yep. So well, we're living in the world of. Uh, the world zones, or whatever these are, now. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I know. Isn't that lovely? This, yeah. So, Dalton, we're going to do this <laughs> slightly differently than we normally do. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you what you initially thought when you first got this book before you started it, what your first actual impression was. First impression, um, I remembered us... From the previous books talking about this one being the one without an actual monster in it. I knew that it was going to be people. And we kind of talked about it being about... I mean, it's called Enemy of the World, so world domination. Right. Um, knowing that it was Ian Martyr, I expected better. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I didn't initially hate this. I don't I don't hate it. It's just there's a lot that... A lot more that I wanted. A lot more that I feel like could have been brought out as is the case with most of these stories what's on the screen is not always what's in the book right so except it should be right it should be or it should be more there should it should improve upon in some ways but this just yeah it just kind of was the even even which we may have even talked about already with the the difficulty with filming right i feel like if there would have been more interaction or or close calls with the Doctor and Salamander mm-hmm. in some way to make us feel tension. Right. But overall, it was kind of like, they're doing their thing over here, and we're doing our thing over here. Yeah. And like, oops, we're never going to see each other. They're in Australia. Oh, wait, he's in Budapest. Right. Either way, they're nowhere near each other. Yeah. And I thought that that was unusual, too, compared to a lot... I can't think of really any other story we've read that hasn't been pretty centralized... Yes. Setting-wise. Yes. You know, maybe a few miles or days travel, if that. Right. But nothing where we're having characters literally on opposite sides of the planet. Yeah. And I think that's another point that it suffers. Because the story itself, you kind of get that a little bit. Because you've got characters constantly coming and going in helicopters. Yeah. Which is kind of cool for Doctor Who. Right. But we have read an Ian Martyr book in which there has been some form of globetrotting when we did um, Reign of Terror. Mm -hmm. And he went into mind-numbing detail about the Bastille and about France and about all of this stuff and described it in world-building. And here there's none of that because he simply doesn't have the page count for it. There's no... There's... This could be anything. 
Yeah. It does the the setting doesn't matter because it could be anywhere. It doesn't yeah. even have to be Earth. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Speaking of, I I don't understand how this machine that causes these natural disasters works. <laughs> you and me both. And how one <clears throat> little outfit of people that have been enslaved. Yes. And how they managed that in the first place, even though we find out that Kent was the one who brought them down there. Yeah. But, but it's like, how? How does this this one location affect the entirety of the planet? Yeah. What's the infrastructure like? What was the actual yeah, the no. build of this thing? Also, we're made to believe that all of the slaves die at the end. But somehow, somehow, even though there's a paragraph ending with Salamander being crushed. Right. <laughs> we're, well, it said that the place was blowing around him. Yes. Maybe literally around but, him. But you're, we're, we're made to believe that all of the slaves died, but the bad guy... Yeah. Just so happens to get out, <laughs> just so he can have like a final. Of course, the whirling dervish in the TARDIS. Yeah. Like, okay, whatever. Yeah, there's there's a lot here that just doesn't add up, and no. eh, it's, that is true. I don't and, know. And it's a shame <laughs> because the televised version. I mean, now that we have it and can appreciate it, really is a decent story. Yeah, it doesn't bear looking at too closely. But yeah. then no Doctor Who story ever does. And I think that's the problem is I'm I'm expecting there to be some kind of explanation for the things that I'm questioning. You know, usually we have some things in stories yeah. that don't line up or things that we don't have a full picture of. But this has just too much of that. Well, you know why that is. It's a David Whitaker script. <laughs> I mean, seriously. If we look at something like, well, you've, you've since read the novelization Doctor Who and an Exciting Adventure with the Daleks. Because I loaned, I loaned it to you. Yeah. You still have it, in yes. fact. Yes, I do um, still have it. Yes. But yeah, I, and, I have read that one. So you've experienced Whitaker's prose. Uh -huh. Now imagine what this book would have been like with that level of prose. Yeah. That would have been a very different experience, I think. Because Whitaker would have said, well, the page count is lower than I'm used to, but... I'm still going to do this as best I can. Well, and even with a low page count, we we still have had books with low page count that they really put a lot in it. Yeah. Even other Ian Martyr books. Yeah, yeah. He, he I don't think we've read one that is was more than a, you know, 150 pages, but no. some of the stories that we've read that he has written are very dense. True. Extremely dense and um, we were talking earlier. I don't know if this is because this was kind of early in his his writing for right. the Target series. Mm -hmm. um, maybe he hasn't found his his voice, his footing. Maybe he doesn't quite understand this doctor, so he doesn't know how to write for him. That might be it. It could be any number of things, but yeah, even even compared to other books that we have read of Ian's, it it, it this one seems like an outlier in a, yeah, in a way. It really is in so many ways, but for Martyr in particular. Yeah, because we loved The Rescue mm -hmm. and Reign of Terror, even though we weren't really history fans, we were all kind of like, oh, this is, this it is had jamming. A, it had a lot way. going on. It, yeah. was, it was definitely a more exciting story to read. And it's a novelization of a six-parter. Mm -hmm. So he, at that yeah. point, he's balanced it. He's yeah. got it pretty well figured out. Here, he's chopping things left and right, which you don't know about, mm -hmm. but I do, which is what makes this book harder for me to read because it's like, oh, I was expecting this. Oh, it's not there. Oh, nope, that scene's gone too. Oh, but that would have explained... Nope, that's gone as well. 
Like, and so that that that's probably also where I'm having trouble and feeling like there are holes because yeah, the connected there are holes. Some of it is gone. Yeah, some not. I, I can't even point to any vital key scenes that have been taken out. But I do know that if we're missing all of that business with the cook, we're missing a lot of what Victoria was doing in the story. Because I'm, I'm betting anything you probably came to this thinking, God, Victoria's got shit to do this time. Yeah, oh, I mean, yeah. she and Jamie thinking. both, basically. Which is weird, because this is a great Jamie story. You wouldn't know it from this book. Yeah. It's I a was, great Jamie story. This, this one is, is basically, was it the last story we read where I was like, was was the actor that played Jamie sick? Because <laughs> yeah. that's been the, the story in the past. They're on vacation, so they took them out of this story. They weren't in a they few episodes. They were on vacation during this one. Both of them during the same episode. Except you wouldn't know it from the book. Because there's no way of telling. Okay. <laughs> in fact, I can't even remember which episode they were on vacation for. But I think it was maybe episode four? But I can't think... Of a stretch of the story where I don't remember Jamie and Victoria being there. And that's the key thing. Yeah. Because if you notice their absence, then it hasn't been well written into the script. Yeah. But if you don't notice it, or if someone says, oh yeah, they're off doing this. They're like, oh, okay, that's fine. There wasn't anything in this book that did that. Victoria spends most of episode three with the cook, who's got some hilarious lines because he he's talking about, oh God, in fact, let me go find the lines. I'll be right back. Okay. We have a couple of lines, in fact, and they're all from episode three. Uh, Griffin, the chef, because he's complaining about the fact that, you know, there are all these disasters going on. He's trying to make the food. And he says, first course interrupted by bomb explosion. Second course affected by earthquakes. <laughs> and it just goes hot like that. And he's just bitching and complaining about, I'm trying to cook the food, and all this shit's going on. Well, I suppose there are worse things. The place could be overrun with rats gnawing holes in the gas pipe so the ovens catch fire and burn the building down. It isn't that bad, Griff. <laughs> Look, I'm only trying to help with a thing. There, you see. This chicken is browning too soon already. It'll be as tough as rubber. Oh, yeah. Now the soup's boiling. Did I put any salt in it? Dinner tonight's going to be a national disaster. Here, look, you want to do something useful? Oh, yes, please. Well, sit down and write out the menus. First course interrupted by bomb explosion. Second course affected by earthquakes. Third course ruined by interference in the kitchen. I'm going out for a walk. It'll probably rain. He tries to get Victoria to come up with a menu, and she doesn't know how to cook. She just knows a good menu. Yeah. And at one point, Kent men mentions a disused jetty, and the doctor mishears him and says, A disused yeti? <laughs> There's a, nice, a tie-in. Yes, it's a nice tie-in, but we don't get that. No. At all, because Marjorie did something kind of awful, and he cut out some of the fun bits. Chopped it all out. Yeah. Yeah, it's, and the problem here is that it, and this is a point I was trying to make earlier, it's a David Whitaker script. His scripts are always complicated. He has casts of characters that are just expansive and Yeah, huge. there's, there's a lot going on. Yeah, there's a lot to follow. Um, which I was having trouble with in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the first two couple of chapters it felt like there were so many characters being introduced yes 
and there were a lot of names. Oh, you said that before, like Bruce and Benick. Yeah, Bruce and I was confusing Bruce and Benick, and there was uh, there were two other names that I kept confusing yeah, or mixing up. Or... They may not even sound alike, but it was just like here's this character, and here's this character, and here's this character, and here's this character. Right. And it's just like, but where is this leading? Or why is this important right now? If you're not going to come back (laughs) to it, then don't introduce them yet. Right. And we do have to have that sort of thing. And normally, Ian Martyr is the sort of writer to not only tell us exactly who the character is, but give them some backstory. Mm -hmm. Not happening this time. Yeah. Not happening at all this time. Which is really unfortunate. Which is also why I think I was having trouble telling people apart. Because other than their name and maybe their position or what they did, that was it. And then you just got their interaction with the other characters in the scene and then they disappear. Let's see if we can figure this out then. Astrid is basically the head of the Resistance, even though Giles Kent is nominally the head of the resistance but he's actually a double agent because he's been working with salamander all along right gets pushed out and decides to try to do some sort of coup type thing yeah. as you expect or you know. not you i know. completely forgot about that i'm taking my toys and going home yes exactly then you get bennick who's the true believer followed by bruce who is head of world security and is a little more suspicious at least at least lawful neutral right <laughs> and, and <laughs> that he will follow the evidence wherever it leads him he's not going to mm-hmm. just have blind allegiance right. just because this dude is right and then you have feria or feria or whatever her name is who is the food taster mm-hmm. who is if i remember correctly and i hope i'm right about this is the first black female actress we've had in a major role on doctor who and I think that's right. I, I'm, I'm sure someone will tell me otherwise. Trey, if you were here, I'm sure you would tell me otherwise. Um, but someone will. Yeah. I'm almost certain that's the case, though. I'm not recalling from any of the stories that I've read any other like, major female... Mm-hmm. Closest one I can come up with is Kaftan. Yeah. Or uh, what uh, What did Jenny call her? Blouse or... <laughs> skirt or something like something that. like tunic some tunic, tunic. That that's it. it tunic um, um but that's the only other one i can think of everybody else has been basically uh cisgendered white men by yeah. and large yes. yeah yeah and, and she seems to hate salamander but she doesn't seem to have real reason to except on screen you get the sense that oh he may not have treated her nearly as well as he says that he did because he you know I lifted you up from where you were, and I can put you back there. It's got that feel to it, and it's like, there should be a bit more there since she has one of the bloodiest deaths in the book. Yes, and I was telling you in in the car on the way here to record, there was a a mistake in the PDF, and it actually changed her name to Pariah, so... (laughs) Yes, she's about to be untouchable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, this that's the one thing that this version has over the televised version. And it's something that I've been warned about with Ian Martyr. He pushes the boundaries with the gore. This one has a high body count. Oh, God, is it ever. Yeah. Yeah, people are <laughs> Very just dying high body left count. and right. And bloodily. Yes. It's also the first time that quote-unquote bad language is used. I, I couldn't find it, though. Uh, someone calls someone else a bastard. And I couldn't find it. I don't remember that. But supposedly that happens in this book. It's probably Salamander. I I can't imagine anyone else. That's not bad language. No. 
that's not bad language. That's just telling it like it is. Yeah. So yeah, it is confusing. A lot of the connected material isn't there any longer. There's some great stuff in it, but only if it's set in 2030. If it's set in 2018, I guess we have hovercraft. I guess we have instantaneous communication. We certainly have FaceTime. They have their own versions of those things. Close enough. Yeah. yeah. We don't have world government yet, but then let Trump get hold of it. Maybe or we will. do we? Yes. Oh, I know. Sorry, we were speaking about conspiracy theories earlier. And so. Illuminati and such. And there are lots of, there. I think I said this in my notes, there are lots of, uh, and they're obviously not intentional references because Trump wouldn't have been a blip on anyone's radar in 1980. No. But, my God, reading this book in 2018, it's kind of like, yeah, you've got this egotistical maniac with a weird accent and bad hair <laughs> who thinks he's a ladies' man and who comes up with these desperately confusing and complicated plots, but then doesn't manage to cover his facts well enough to hide it. But somehow still manages to not be in trouble for anything. Exactly. There we go. Exactly. Maybe Cheeto Man read this book and (laughs) learned a thing or two. Oh, come on. Like Cheeto's ever read a book. Yeah. I somehow Uh, think not. (laughs) <laughs> maybe not past Dr. Seuss but <laughs> oh, not that. so what do we say about this um, because it is a good Jamie story in, in that Jamie gets more to do he's actually called a genius at one point which it just boggles the mind that Jamie McCrimmon would ever be called a genius under any circumstances and a lot of that when you see the televised version is Fraser Hines's um performance because he plays jamie as this kind of very stone cold mastermind in some ways it's like oh whoa okay i'm sexualizing you too for some reason good god (laughs) y'all you boys need to calm down because you're gonna have me looking at victoria weirdly next well i guess he really of the two of them he was the one that did have something to do because didn't they wasn't he kind of brought on as part of the secret police who yeah. are coming to get us now? There we are. <laughs> yeah. They heard us speaking about our leader. The fearless leader. Yes. Um, yeah, that's it. He's part of the plot. Victoria supposedly has something to do because she's assigned to the cook. What the fuck is going on out there? Well, this is the wonders of recording live without a studio, ladies and gentlemen. The world is falling apart outside, and here we are talking about the world falling apart on the printed page. Mm-hmm. Except here it's literal. Yeah, Victoria is supposed to, I guess, be part of the plot because she's part of the cooks, um, but not really. But yeah, we don't really hear anything about she her. She actually falls asleep on the bench at one point. Yeah. It's like, okay. Well, you you have that vacation girl. It's like, honestly. Well, let's talk about specifics then. Let's see. Because thematically, even thematically there's not much to talk about with this book because it's... I think the only thing thematically that is strong and is not really touched on until the very end is the whole situation with the the slaves and them kind of believing or not believing mm-hmm. it's kind of the like the story of the, the allegory of the cave and yeah way. they're yeah they're absolutely. told this is your world and this is what you live in and this is what it is 
and even when um, when Astrid goes down the end, they're oh, you're you're contaminated. We yes. need, and she's just like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. What? So even then, they're kind of Stockholm syndromed into believing yeah. that their life down below is better than what's up above. Right. And that has played a much better effect on the screen. Especially with the scene with Astrid, because when she does come down, she doesn't get hit by things. They don't throw things at her. And she gets hit and she's barely hanging on to consciousness. She's like, no, no, I'm here to help. You've all been duped. Come, look. And they're like, we've got to decontaminate you. And she says, oh, this thing? (laughs) She steps into it and she says, okay, I'm decontaminated. Now, let me show you this. And she sticks something else in there. It's suddenly full of radiation. And she says, see, you've been duped. Which is a scene that doesn't happen on the page. that could have been a paragraph and that would have helped. Marvelously. And it would have... It would have brought the story along a lot faster, that's for sure. Yeah. For all those underground people who die at the end, we think, who we really don't care if they die or not, because they're only there for like a couple of scenes, a couple of pages. Yeah. They get names, but I couldn't tell you. Colin and Mary, I think, are the names. Yeah. That's it. Well, those two don't <laughs> die because they were brought up on the, the shuttle. Yeah. Or whatever, so like. Exactly. The two with names don't die and everyone else we don't. Everyone else, I guess, dies. Or do they? Well, maybe. I don't really care. Maybe they ended up in the TARDIS as well. And they had a final <laughs> showdown. And Oh, God. What the fuck was up with that? The final showdown in the, the TARDIS? Yes. like They kind of allude to the fact that yeah. the TARDIS was reacting to Salamander, but it's like... Yeah. What would actually... I believe... Self-defense? No. No, I believe that Salamander tried to put the, the TARDIS into motion and managed to okay. somehow launch without the doors being closed and get sucked out into the vortex which is the very last scene of the episode he just turned on the spin cycle yeah and, <laughs> and get, okay and get shoved <laughs> into the wash <laughs> it's the only way to get all that brown makeup off and to get the cigar smoke out of his clothes that is the weirdest thing seeing trout and light up a cigar and just smoke it on the screen it's like holy shit some cigar fetishist out there is going to be like, oh. Daddy. Yeah, exactly. I didn't, of course. <laughs> but it's weird to see any doctor smoking, I should say. But, yeah. of course, they almost Let's... all of them did and do. It, the book starts off so promisingly. That first paragraph lets you know it's January and it's the height of the Australian summer, which, of course, a reader would have to be reminded is going to be hot as fuck right, in Australia. Summer is in the winter for us Northern yeah. Hemisphere people. Exactly. So. It's getting hot for them. It's getting, well, it's not cold today, but it's... Yeah. Yeah. And we're back to buckets and spades with the doctor and the, the beach again, which is lovely. But then we get lines like, the huge figure of Rod suddenly <laughs> loomed up. I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. Holy God. Yeah, we might as well just go through the notes and figure That's out. That's why I'm, see- I'm seeing if there's anything that I that is worth bringing up. Yeah. Um, that I haven't already Except talked the about. Dinner we just had. <laughs> um, let's see. We do. Here's the thing. We do get into the plot really quickly, and that happens in both versions because we only ever had episode. What did I say? Episode two. Episode three. Episode three was the one that. The one that survived, yeah. and by then it feels like it's trotting along really quickly. I mean, we do get that scene where the doctor says... Do we get that scene where the doctor says, 
what a shame people make beautiful things and then other people come along and smash them up. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's in, there. in there. Which is a really lovely moment yeah. there. But then the rest of it... Repulsive reptile? Oh, because he's salamander. <laughs> yes, that's a good line. And the sun catcher is mentioned, and then never mentioned again, even though it's supposedly, at first, the MacGuffin, because you think the salamander is going to use the sun catcher for something. Yeah. Like, to do some sort of Bondian plot to... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? That was a Bond plot, wasn't there? Where a giant um, mirror was being... Or am I thinking the Avengers movie? Where a giant uh, magnifying glass is being trained on the Earth and it's supposed to be delivering sun to some of the colder areas of the planet for um, agricultural purposes, but then the mastermind who's come up with it is like, I'm going to burn the cities of the world unless you pay me billions and billions of dollars. I'm not remembering that from a Bond film. It may so be, it might the be the Avengers. It might be. But it sounds Bondian, doesn't it? It sounds very much like something from James Bond. Yes, so. and it sounds like this is where this book should have gone. It feels that way. It, it feel, I'm, I'm remembering... What was it? The World is Not Enough. One of the more yeah. recent Bond films. Oh my god. And I... Well, usually I'm so good at remembering Bond trivia, but... But this isn't trivia. This is a plot. Either way. Either way. I'm sure someone will tell Big us. Big bad guy trying to take over the world. <laughs> With something called a suncatcher. Yeah. 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 And yet we don't hear of it again. Jamie, at least in the televised version, says, Oh, was that like an ionizer? He ties it back to the previous story again. Yeah. But, we don't even get those ties. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. This is just a standalone. Yeah, it really is. By the way, I, I think I finally have an answer to uh, Allison's question about monsters, and she's not here to hear it now. But hopefully she'll listen to this episode. Hello, Allison. Um, because I was getting all flummoxed about what defines a monster. Right. Cybermen are not monsters. Because they kind of chose that. They originated as human. Uh-huh. They metamorphosed, they mutated. Yeah. Daleks are not monsters for the same reason. Ice warriors are definitely not monsters. They're just another alien race. The Great Intelligence? Monstrous. Monster. The yeah. Yetis, not monsters. Yetis are not monsters because they're robots. Yeah, yes. exactly right. Salamander is monstrous in his behavior, but he's not a monster in the true sense because he's not some, you know ravening supernatural creature of some sort he is instead just a human who is really insanely sick and evil yeah as most mexicans are love you danny uh, uh let's see what else um, <laughs> yeah i'm sure you didn't hear that i hope you didn't we'll have plato come flying down that uh hallway here in a minute and we'll know um monsters Trying to think of other versions of monster. Um, the Zarbi are not monsters. The Monoptera definitely are not monsters. The Animus, the thing that was taking over the Zarbi homeworld and was causing all that stress, uh-huh. that's a monster. Yeah. Yeah. So monsters can be sentient and they can have brains, but they can't necessarily be. Well, and and by the sounds of things, monsters seem to be more standalone creatures yes. as opposed to a full race that has evolved th- through time. Precisely. Right. So the very fact that this whole season is called the monster season 
just gets my goat because one, they're not all monsters, and two, this one, this story specifically, the only thing monstrous about it is well, the book. Oh Lord. So yeah, let me just see if there's anything else in here. <laughs> this may be one of our shortest episodes ever. Sorry, guys, but also. <laughs> Read the book and see if you feel any different. Yeah, and that's telling too because I fully expected that somebody would contribute to the Goodreads group for this one. Not a word. Not a single word. Not a thing. There are, oh, that's the other thing. Lots of reported dialogue, which I normally despise. Mm-hmm. Except Martyr does it in such a way that it actually doesn't feel all that bad. But then he does have six episodes to compact yeah. in under 128 pages. It's not like he has a choice. He does it better than uh, Luke Roddy did. Um, besides, it is Jamie telling Victoria what we already know, so why not do it that way? Yeah. Um, I do so hate this cloak and dagger business, says the Doctor, and understandably, since it so little resembles the usual Doctor Who story. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. It, you have this is from chapter six. You have just a note that um, the bit about the sanctum is where the story gets weird and starts developing some developing some ever widening plot holes. Yes. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, I thought that the the room that they couldn't get into was the inner sanctum, but then at the end of the book, they they're getting into the room that the doctor is in with yes. Kent. Yes. Which is not what they were initially trying to. They were talking about right. breaking the hinges off of. Yes. Yeah. Just, yeah. Doesn't make sense, does it? There's not stuff lining up. No. Yet. No. It definitely doesn't. And that's also where it starts getting really confusing because we get the brand new set of characters because we finally meet the people under underground. Right. Yeah. It just... Uh, <laughs> it gets really, really complicated quickly. Though I do wonder if... The fact that the doctor couldn't get down there and needed a screwdriver might be the reason he comes up with the sonic screwdriver because it's going to make its first appearance in two stories. Mm. So we will be getting it soon. And I could just see him saying, you know, at times like this, I could really use a screwdriver. And I don't mean the drink. Didn't he already have the sonic screwdriver, though? In a book. Ah. Terrence Dix forgot. Gotcha. Right, yes. <laughs> yeah, because he had it, was it last book or was it the one previous? It was two or three ago. Yeah, yeah, someone put it in and it was too soon. Too soon, too, too soon. soon. Yeah. He's not supposed to have that yet. He's not supposed to have it yet because it's supposed to be uh, Fury from the Deep. Which Someone's using a game genie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. And then he's smoking a cigar and looking at a book about butterflies. Now that is a martyr moment. He's just looking at a book about butterflies for no apparent reason. It's just there. He's killing time. You can't just smoke a cigar. It's like, no, no, I'm going to look at a book about butterflies too. Oh, it's like, that almost in a way is like a nod to the butterfly effect. But it's like... (laughs) Maybe that could be. And I could see martyr doing that. Right. It's like, it's it's maybe there. Yeah. But yes, no. Mm-hmm. Oh, agreed. And it's not like this. It's not like this story has bad moments. There are a few really good ones, like in chapter seven, and I believe this is something that happens on screen too. That the Doctor wins Bruce's trust by getting his gun, but then giving it right back to him. Yeah, that's a very Doctorish. Thing. He 
basically says, I have your life in my hands, but I'm giving it back to you. So how about yeah, calm down? And we've seen the doctor do that time and again. I think this is the first time he does it. Yeah. And so that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's a that's a really good scene. Yeah. Dial 007. Yeah, that was... I watched that episode the other night, and it's 001, and the code word is redhead. So that would be appropriate for you, our reddish one. Yes. <laughs> but 007. Well, I'm, there, there you go. There's that tie into that whole like Bond villain kind of thing true. too. So, well, we haven't gotten there yet, but we will. Ian Martyr is going to write a one-off book featuring his original character, Harry Sullivan, called Harry Sullivan's War. And some people think of it as a pretty decent book with a Doctor Who character that also happens to be a Bond pastiche. Okay, we're gonna read it because it's a Target book. Um, it was never filmed, obviously. Hmm. But I'm looking forward to it because I'm thinking it's what he wanted to do with this one, but couldn't because of the yeah. page count. And he was doing someone else's story. Yeah. But, yeah. I really wish Whitaker had done this one. I wish he had survived to do this one because... It would have been completely different. It really would have. We would have gotten something. Perfect teeth? Troughton? <laughs> Salamander revealed his perfect teeth? What? Perfect Sal- teeth Salamander. For... Well, yeah, but they're identical. And these are British teeth, after all. No no offense, guys, but we're talking about 1960s British teeth, and you know what I'm talking about, because you've seen Trout with his mouth open, with that dead tooth. Perfect teeth? Get out of here. And Salamandrium? It wasn't called out on screen. Well, yeah, I mean, when you're that egotistical, of course you're going to name the... I guess so. <laughs> I love the fact, though, that when they, they reveal that Kent's the bad guy, and he um, locks himself into the room, they say that they can see him mouthing insults, and it's yes. like, why is he still insulting them? He can't, they can't hear him. <laughs> it's just this hilarious... <laughs> this hilarious. That was that was that was a good scene though. That it's a was... hilarious image. <laughs> yeah, just. <sighs> uh... And I think I did say, does everyone know that the building is going to explode except for the audience? It's like seriously, everybody knows. Pretty much, everybody knows. <laughs> and that last bit in chapter ten, that strange doubling that Victoria experiences when Salamander is holding her hostage. And she sees the doctor trying to help. And then she thinks, oh no, I'm being held by the doctor and it's Salamander who's creeping up on us, who's trying to attack mm-hmm. us. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Yes, and that that could have led to so much more suspense and character development and yes. relationships and everything in the story and would have made him seem even more diabolical. Exactly. But the fact that they never experience each other until the very end. No. It just... And in fact, I'm wondering... I'm going to look this up because we obviously have time. I'm going to look this up because I want to see what the Target book by uh, David J. Howe says about it. Because I've been remiss. I haven't been looking at that book very often. It's got contemporaneous reviews Mm. of the books. And it really is kind of our Bible for this podcast, even though you wouldn't know it from how little we talk about it (laughs) but i want to know what they said about it at the time so i'm gonna download this puppy real quick because it's in my uh, dropbox four minutes left 
Oh, fuck that. I'm just going to open it from here. All right. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Because we're talking 1980, right? And, oh, wait, there it is. Okay, got it. Um, I did look one up of one of these reviews done for the book, and I was shocked by how glowing it was. They liked it. Yeah, but I noticed, too, that it was it was from some time back, and it was probably long before this person had ever seen even the existing episode, or maybe even listened to the audio, because the audios of all six episodes, of course, existed. So I'm wondering if that was why it was so well regarded by this one reviewer whose name I have completely forgotten to save my life. All right, here we go. All right, if we're talking about 1980, we're talking about a year that saw lots of sirens outside, for one thing. Also saw tons of Tom Baker um, releases. The original, oh, there you go. There you go, Dalton. The original cover of Enemy of the World looked like that. Which makes a little more sense. It's the TARDIS hanging over a volcanic whatever. Which I think makes a little more sense. So, natural disasters are the enemy of the world. Yes. That's what it looks like. Exactly. Alright, so 1981. Oh, yeah. I forgot this. I, I need to talk about this because 1981 was a weird year for Target. Because in eighty. The Writers Guild of Great Britain wanted their parent company, W.H. Allen, to do a standard contract for the writers. And their main reason for doing this was Terrence Dix, because he was a Guild uh, member. The problem was, though, most of their members were script writers, not book writers, so they didn't have a lot of leverage. But they did have leverage with him. And he's quoted as saying, I was doing a lot of books and the Guild got in touch with me and said that they wanted me to take part in a strike, but that this was going to affect me rather quite badly. I had a meeting with them about it and tried my best to dissuade them. I told them that they were asking me to sacrifice myself and my career for their cause, but they said they were right behind me. And although I argued, I couldn't get anywhere. And it was just miserable luck because basically that year, they only did four books. In 19, wow. All of 1981. Four books. Two of them were Terrence Sticks. And in fact, one of them we've read already. We've read An Unearthly Child. That was the year it was uh, released. So I was right about this coming during uh, Davison's first year. <coughs> I don't think he'd appeared on screen yet. But that year they only did Creature from the Pit by David Fisher. Enemy of the World, Ian Martyr. And then the two by Terrence Sticks. And I think part of that is because... Those were the only authors that they could get to actually do it with this whole work action going mm. on. How many have they been releasing a year? Um, up to twelve in some cases. Oh wow! Yeah, they were doing at least one a month. So this one time. was really kind of a dry spell. It really was. And then you get this, obviously. Uh, let's see. What did they say about this? Um, re- fan reaction to the four 1981 books was mixed. The Enemy of the World was criticized by Chris Martin in the fanzine Wheel in Space. Some of the writing has much to commend it, like the description of the TARDIS landing on the beach. However, Mm -hmm. vast chunks of the story have been cut. So have huge portions of dialogue. This is a pity, as it makes the book chop about so much that there is no natural flow, and this jars more than once. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would absolutely agree (laughs) with that. 
Yeah, so I'm, yeah, I, I'm right there with him. And I think that's, like, my main problem. Mm-hmm. That is all that the In the Target book has to say about this book. Just that one contemporaneous review that says, yeah, this blows. <laughs> and it's from a fanzine. Usually fanzines are, well, no, fanzines can be relied upon to give really solid, honest opinions. They, yeah. They're not dependent on, you know merchandising like certain publications we know of that tend to give glowing reviews even to shite though they haven't done that in a while so i better be a little kind to them because they may mention us by name someday so yes yes we love you you know who you are <laughs> god doing this is just like uh, yeah it's very trumpy it's like you know going down on some big mushroom headed cock oh my god no, small mushroom. Small, small mushroom. small mushroom. That's right. It's more like a morel than a... Uh, or a... Yeah. <laughs> so, should we go to Goodreads? Uh, yeah. yeah we can almost, do that. We're almost on the hour mark, so why not? I think we have said all that we are going to say. We really have. There's not much to say. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers, then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, and comment in our Goodreads group by the in our fuck in our new Goodreads group by the deadline, so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book here. The average rating for this book. Out of five stars is 3.39, which is a lot higher than I thought it would be, but it's still lower than Ice Warriors. Hmm. Who said it? Jennifer Tall gives it only one star, saying, I, ellipsis, am just truly in sadness (laughs) and in anger. What the hell happened? This is my favorite Doctor Who story of all... It is? Seriously? How? This is my favorite Doctor Who story of all time, and Ian Martyr turns the story into a plain, sappy, I hope that's sappy, it looks like sapy, over-generic and one-sided dystopia thriller. So what happened? I really want to know. How can such a beautiful, gripping, thrilling, and truly suspenseful story, I imagine that's the word that's missing there, be turned into a complete train wreck? Out of all the novelizations I've read of Doctor Who stories, this is the number one worst (laughs) My only recommendation is just to simply avoid this book. Go and watch the story, and then imagine what a proper novelization of this, uh, uh, yeah, what a proper no- version of this novelization would be like. Or try writing your own. It'll probably be ten times better. <laughs> I hate to say it. Snap. I know the ghost of Ian Martyr probably hates me now, but I, I think she's probably right. Paolo Carvalho, on the other hand, gives it three stars and says, "I really enjoy this one." Both novel and television episode were done in a good style, even if the TV series is better. Why? Because in the novel, we don't get anything else besides what's on the TV. What? That's a shame. When you serialize, you expect something more, but alas, that did not happen. So Doctor Who has a double, and that double is an evil evil genius. That was interesting. You've come (laughs) to see Doctor Who with a charismatic personality that has power to be master of the world, a person with unlimited time life, with the possibility to change the past can make things happen his own way. What? It's a nice addition, and thank the fans for covering this recording after 20 to 30 years, so it sounds more like he's talking about the story, but he's talking about the book. And finally, Matt gives it only two stars, and he says, 
it's difficult to write a fair review of these novelizations. On one hand, there's nothing wrong with Martyr's writing. It is pleasant enough to read without any hint of convolution or pretense, and doesn't distract from the narrative. That much is true. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, <laughs> the story is actually pretty stupid. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel, Yes, Matt. I think he just did. Mm. Obviously, Martyr has to work from the material he's given, so he cannot be blamed, but that doesn't change the fact that this wasn't a particularly good book. Martyr is worth three or four stars, but the story is not. I completely agree there. Mm-hmm. This is not a problem necessarily with the writer. It may indeed be the material and having to jam it into 127 pages. I thought the premise was stupid to begin with, and even a political mastermind just happens to look exactly like the Doctor, but it is made worse because there is just no explanation. Wondering why the sky looks like the Doctor? No reason. He just does. No thanks. Well, panel, by which I mean Dalton, what would you give this out of five stars? Um, hmm. I'm gonna go higher than one because i feel like one is like crap (laughs) i think i'm gonna agree with matt though and go with two stars just because because yeah martyr's writing is not horrible no martyr's writing is not what makes me dislike this it's what he's done with the story so yeah knowing what it could have been and what we have that's where my brain is just finding this disconnect um there were yeah, there's just not a whole lot here that had me excited or wanting to read more. It, yeah. it wasn't a chore to get through this. I mean, it's not that long, right. but it still was just like, where is this going? Why is this? There's there's more questions than answers, and anytime that's going on, it's like, okay, let me just get through this and next. Exactly. So yeah, two stars may even be high, but I'll say two stars. All right. So. And he guessed during one of our breaks that Allison would probably give this book something in negative integers. Because I think she gave Planet of Giant Dicks a uh, one star out of five. This yeah. one is actually worse than that one, I think, in many ways. Because it's just, yeah, it's... Here's the thing, dear listeners. This podcast gives me a break from my day job, in which I teach six classes at four different universities. Over the last two weeks, I have had papers come in from all four classes, anywhere from 15 to 30 per class, and usually I take a break from grading to read Doctor Who books. This time, every time I took a break from grading and went to pick this one up, I was like, you know what? Let's get ahead of ourselves. I can grade maybe three or five more papers. I got a few more in me. Yeah, I can do this, because (laughs) I really hate this book my god this is only my second time reading this the first time i read it was as an adult early 2000s went to a local library in michigan they had it in hardback and i was like okay i've never read this one before i'll read it hated it two snaps nothing has changed yeah i heard the snap from back there thank you girl um and it was terrible I, I and i thought it would be slightly better this time because i've come to appreciate martyr's style there's very little martyr in here you've got that scene at the beginning you've got the one at the end and you have the blood and him <laughs> calling blood. somebody yeah and you've got somebody calling someone else a bastard and that's about it there is nothing here 
that screams martyr, except kill me, kill me, I deserve to be martyred for reading this book. Ugh, and normally I would never make a martyr pun because I admire him so much, but I do not admire this book. Mm -hmm. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like it, Sam I am. I give this a one out of five, which I believe is the lowest score I've ever given anything on this podcast. I think even Planet of Giants, I I give 1.5. Yeah. So yeah, this is... The lowest of the low. Yeah, and we're not even... We're not even to some of the worst books yet. Though this is bad. This is bad. Well, actually, no. Let's say it. This is one of the worst ones. If you disagree, let us know. Somehow I don't think you will. Well, thank you, Guy. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we get The Web of Fear. Ooh. Ooh. Think there'll be a monster in it? Is it going to be a spider? It might be. You never know. I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) In fact, I'm going to send this to you without the cover on it. The Internet of Fear. Yes. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, though I can't really imagine that, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast or on Word of No Spaces, just like a madman. I guess they could like us. They don't have to like the book. That's true. I think they like. You can also visit our nearly pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dw target bc now with images because reddit changed everything and now you can put images in text posts nice. which I didn't know how to do before. I don't know anything about reddit so. Well now you should. Also feel free to watch videos of our first 12 episodes. Give us a thumbs up a comment on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash user forward slash forward slash videos. It also has my ongoing vlog Emperor Dalek's Commutes, in which I bitch and whine and moan about being stuck in traffic on I-55. Joy. Follow us on Twitter, we're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, email us at DWTargetBC at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. That's what I like about this book. <laughs> Holy shit. The excuse to order pizza. <laughs> yes, that's about it. And we didn't even drink. Nope. Damn it. Well, we didn't need to because can you imagine if we'd gotten drunk and bitched about this book? We would have had lots more mean things to say. That's true. Be thinking about your uh, stars and all that. What do you want to give this? And... What we th- and we can talk about we can maybe make a prediction of what Allison would have given it <laughs> maybe five and on Allison's scale I don't even know that this would make one star it might be negative <laughs> integers at this point yeah it might very well be because Christ almighty it is just not good he's going to give it a point two it's one point of a single star <laughs> one fifth you need to repeat that. <laughs> Let's get it all out. <laughs> uh, there we are. I know, grace and charm. No wonder I'm still single.